be continuing our series in 1st John. We're in chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at 1st John chapter 3 verses 7 through 10. And so if you'll open there with me, we'll read 1st John chapter 3 in a moment. We've been discussing last week the relationship between Christ and sin. Really, the relationship between Christ and our sin. This week, he moves on to the relationship between Christ, our sin, and the devil. And he's building here, really, we're at the core of the book of First John. We're building up this big test of what it means to be a Christian. And are you really walking in Christ? Are you walking in the light with him? Are you walking in the truth with him? Are you a child of God? And so this section concludes really a test that starts back in chapter 2, verse 28. And I should start reading there. Uh, The test of are we living as children of God? Are we really children of God? So let us start our reading Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we read these things and are troubled in our hearts by it because we confess, Lord, that we do sin and we wrestle with these things. And we pray as we consider these verses that 
You would open our minds and our hearts, our eyes and our ears, that we might really understand their meaning, their calling to us, and examine our hearts faithfully and diligently and truthfully, that we might better know and better understand the things you're trying to tell us, and that we might better live our lives according to your word, and better live our lives for your kingdom and your glory, that when the day comes that your son appears, we might not shrink away in shame, but might have confidence and joy in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section, and I'm actually going to start at verse 8. This section, he says, the one who makes a practice of sinning is from the devil. You remember the previous section, the one who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness and doesn't know God. Here, the one who practices sinning not only is practicing lawlessness and doesn't know God, but is at the devil. So he's taking it one step further. He's making a distinction between the one who practices righteousness and the one who practices sin. And he'll come back to this again in verse 10, so we'll look at that some more in verse 10. But whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil. We talked last week about the grammar here, the different groups interpret this a little differently. And we we accepted that the ESV's translation was both grammatically sound and theologically sound. And so verse 7, person who makes righteousness is normal practice is habit. Verse 8, the one who makes sin their normal practice or habit. That person is now the child of the devil. John records Jesus' discourse about the devil, and John, in 1 John, really has a lot of going back to the Gospel of John. And this is one of those places where he does that. In verse chapter 8, verse 31 and following, in John's Gospel, Jesus says to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And we talked about this before. Abiding in his word is the practicing of righteousness, the walking in the light, the all of the good things that John has been calling us to in the last three chapters. It's obedience to God's revealed will. So if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, free from slavery to sin, of course. But the Jews answered him, we are, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will become free? Of course, they didn't know their own history. They'd been slaves to many people over the years, and they were now being ruled virtually as slaves by Rome. Uh, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's what... John has been talking about here in chapter 3, the practice of sin versus the practice of righteousness. If you are practicing sin, you are a slave to sin. And if you are practicing sin, you do not know God. If you are practicing sin, you are of the devil. In other words, the slaves to sin are slaves of the devil, are not of God. 
pretty harsh, but John continues on because they they fight him in John chapter 8 a bit. And in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. So they are children of the devil, the ones who are opposing Christ. And your will is to do your father's desires. What does his father desire? What does the devil desire? What are they doing? Making a practice of sinning. And that is what makes them children of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Murder is violating the sixth commandment. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lie is a violation of the ninth commandment. And because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Think about that for a moment. Because he's telling them the truth, they won't believe him. If he told them a lie, they would accept it. And how true is that of sinful man in general, even in our day? A politician who tells them the truth, stone him. A politician who tells them a good lie, Elect him. Uh, that's our nature as sinners. And that goes back to the truth of God especially. They do not believe him because it is truth and they do not like the truth. And he challenges them. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now he is the sinless one we talked about last week. Christ who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus goes on, I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, meaning they respect and obey God's word, the Bible. The reason why you do not hear them is you're not of God. Just as he said, they're of the devil, so they don't hear God's word, they don't understand God's word, they won't obey God's word, they won't keep God's word. They will live in rebellion of it. And so they are children of the devil. And we believers then should be children of God. Now, I read Genesis chapter 6 for a reason. Sometimes people get confused with this whole children of God thing. Uh, The first, I want to take us even further back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God is judging them for the fall, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman to Satan to the devil, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring being referred to there is Christ, but note there will be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. Who are those? Genesis 6, the first five verses, talks about the daughters of man and the sons of God. And one of the more fanciful interpretations of that is that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are humans and that angels and men made babies and they were supermen. Um, Very bizarre. I mean, it makes you think of pagan Greek mythology, but it's apparently a very popular interpretation even to this day. And I'm sure most of you have heard this before. Uh, The main problem with that is that we're called the sons of God, the children of God. And 
my parents were not angels, neither of them, I can assure you, <laughs> nor demons. Uh, Jesus, in rebuking the Sadducees, who were trying to make a mockery of the word of God, said to them in Matthew 22:29 and 30, that you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. They were denying the resurrection. He says, at the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, the context here is about making babies. This man had, you know, a wife and he died before, or she, he died before he had a baby. So she was given to his brother to make a baby. And he died before they had a baby. All the way through seven brothers, whose wife will she be? Ha, 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 ha. There can't be a resurrection. He says, you don't understand. You know, having babies is not the purpose in heaven. The angels don't have babies. You won't either. It's not a punishment thing. It's a, we're different then. And the angels do not make children. And so they couldn't have been going in to be with humans and making babies. That's just silly. Uh, if you read scripture, and you think about the sons of God as they're mentioned throughout the Bible, it becomes pretty obvious that it's us, it's the believers. Romans chapter 9, in particular, has a discussion about that. And I'll start reading at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all are descended of Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, will your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the children of God were not the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Abraham by flesh. Now, what is he talking about? Of course, Abraham had two sons. One was chosen and blessed by God to be the heir. One was rejected, and if you look at his descendants, they were the enemies of God. They were not believers. They were not saved. They had no place in God's kingdom. So who were the children of God? The children of the promise. And Paul's point in that passage is saying that the children of promise is not the biological Israel, but is the essentially the spiritual Israel, the believers of Israel. And of course, we are grafted into that group. As we are believers, we become spiritual children of Abraham and children of God. And so here, in 1 John 3, verse 1, we just read this, what kind, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Who are the children of God? The ones, the children of promise. The ones that God has claimed for himself, set aside for his son to be his brothers, to be his kingdom, to be God's children. And who are the children of the devil then? Everyone else. You're either one or the other. There are only two groups. You either belong to God or you do not. 
You have either been washed in the saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, or you have not. And it says, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We just read that he was a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies from the beginning. Uh, we don't want to think too foolishly about that, though. I remember reading once, somebody insisting that there was an entire world before Adam was created and there was the fall and there was sin and there was corruption and there was evil. And I said, but wait a minute. Have you never read Genesis 1.31? God looked at all that he had made and behold, it was very good and it was evening and it was morning the sixth day. After God created man, everything was very good. The devil had not fallen. There was no sin before that point in time. There was no sin before Adam. There was no sin before creation was finished in Genesis 1 and 2. So by the beginning there, we should remember that it doesn't mean before that, because there was no sin. It was very good. Uh, it could mean after that point, the devil sinned shortly thereafter, and that's the beginning in relationship to now. Or it could mean the beginning of his career as the devil, the adversary, the rebel against God. Remember that he is a rebel. Sin is lawlessness, and he is the father of sin, essentially. He is the great lawless one, the rebel against all that God has established. though we don't have many details. Uh, many people search diligently in Scripture and try to find passages and relate them to the devil and build a theology of the devil, but I don't think that's wise. We aren't to satisfy our curiosity in him. He is God's enemy, and therefore he is the believer's enemy, and we don't need to glorify him by assigning him anything beyond the fact that he is a rebel and a sinner and a murderer and a liar and the father of lies and have nothing to do with that. Of course, he has another title, which is very important. Remember when Jesus started his ministry in Matthew 4? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He is the tempter. And where did the sin with man begin? Genesis 3.1 The servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, what a great skillful temptation. Did God really say? And how many times have we heard that in our lives? Did so-and-so, did the boss really say? Did mom really say? Did dad really say? Is that what he meant? How many times have we used that? Uh, it's a skillful and a very heinous Temptation, a heinous sin. 
But did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now he is the great tempter, one of the sins he is faithfully engaged in from the beginning to now is to tempt people to sin. Which is why Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, the devil continues to this day prowling around looking for ways to tempt people to make them fall. And we need to be worried and we need to be concerned. He has been sinning from the beginning and that tempting of men is one of his sins. But he also says here in our passage that in verse 8 that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. We saw last week that the reason the Son of God came was to bring us the forgiveness of sins. Right? Verse 5, he appeared to take away sin. Well, here we have in verse 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. It's, he's not contradicting himself, but rather he's expanding on the idea. How does he take away sin? Well, one of the ways he does that is in destroying the work of the devil. The works, plural, actually in the text. The devil leads people to damnation, entices them to sin. Christ takes away sin, leads people to salvation. At every point in what the devil does is really in opposition to what Christ is doing and what Christ has come to do. Throughout all of Christ's work, Satan is there as an adversary. And that's what Satan means, adversary, the word. It's not a name, it's, it's a word. And he's the great adversary, the great Satan. He opposes Christ and he opposes all who would be with him in everything that belongs to God and everything that God desires. And this enmity between him and God, we, we saw it explained and defined back in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you because you are the tempter. You have led them to sin. They have agreed. They, the guilt is theirs, but you have chosen to lead them to sin. And that enmity will remain until the end. And so he, he takes, we're all now having, Adam having decided that what Satan says is better than what God said. Right? Satan says, oh, this will be good for your knowledge. God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll have knowledge of good and evil just like him. Adam said, ooh, I like that. I like that better than what God said. And so at that point, he left God's kingdom and bound himself and his, his descendants to Satan. And now in Satan's kingdom. But Christ has come to deliver us from that. Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
You know, we have left that if we have become children of God, we have left Satan's kingdom and are now in Christ's kingdom. And he is therefore destroying the kingdom of Satan by taking his people out from it. And so these two warring kingdoms, though, are in this world. There's no compatibility between them. There's no peace between the devil and Christ. There's no peace between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. There's no place where sin and Christ can coexist. There's no place where the devil and Christ can coexist. There's no place where the children of the devil and the children of Christ can coexist. There's enmity between them. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, remove the sins of his people, give us a spirit, his Holy Spirit, so that we can live holy lives. And this being the case, there's no way we can do the works of the devil and walk with Christ in the light. And this is the point he's trying to make in this passage. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil, and if we are doing the works of the devil, then we belong to the devil, and we are going to be destroyed with him. And that's the point of verse 8. Everyone who makes this practice of sinning belongs to the devil. And the devil's domain is sin. But verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now what does it mean to be born of God? John chapter 1. Verse 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith as he's freely offered to us in the gospel, that is what it means to be born of God. It means to be born again. We know that passage. We've committed the whole Nicodemus thing to memory. We remember the story well. He tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we've just talked about become a son of God means to be transferred into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter God's kingdom. You cannot become a child of God. Nicodemus is very confused. What? I'm an old man. Can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? What does this mean? What does it mean to be born again? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say, unless is born of born one, excuse me, unless one is born of Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. In other words, when you're born as a person, you're born of flesh. You're in the flesh, you're in the devil's kingdom. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Very cryptic words. 
To which Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I mean, I don't get it. And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, when I first read that, I thought he was pretty harsh. How, what, would he, what, what, what should he know? How would he understand? Well, now that I know my Old Testament prophets a little better, I know Ezekiel 36, the passage we've read quite a few times, 25 through 27 of Ezekiel 36, the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament, the promise that Jesus is talking about. What does it mean to be born again, born of the Spirit, Born of water. Well, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will move your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Note that it's all God. I, I will, I will, I will and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know, this regeneration that God is talking about here is is an act of God, and it's something he does, and it's, there's no indication that it takes any time. He does it. I give you the heart, the spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Done. And there's a result. The result being, because God changed our heart and put his spirit in us, therefore we will walk in obedience. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Bring that back here to 1 John. Because we have been born of God, we can no longer walk in sin. That's the text, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If we've been born of God, we have a new heart, a new spirit, and God has caused us to be careful to walk in his statutes. And therefore, we do not anymore walk in our sins, as the world does. Cause and effect very clearly set forward in the Old Testament and understood by Jesus sharing the gospel with Nicodemus about being born again and understood by John and explained to us here. Being born of God, being born of God means that we no longer make a practice of sinning because he has transformed our life. And that not making a practice of sinning is the evidence that we have been born of God that transformation of our life. Now, it's not possible to make a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in them, he goes on to say. Now, what is this seed that abides in us? Some see the seed as our new nature, our new heart. And as with Paul, we say, I, you know, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, Romans 7:22. You know, you read the law to an unbeliever, It's like, oh, that's horrible. Oh, that's tedious. Oh, I can't stand that. I remember pastor telling me about sharing the gospel with somebody when I first became a believer. And she said, well, you know, it's it's very hard and very tedious to be a Christian. And 
I want to do that one day, but I'm going to wait until I'm much older. And then I'm going to, not going to join your church, though. I'm going to join the really strict one that doesn't allow TV or makeup or anything or drinking or coffee or any of those things so that I'll be sure that I'm good to go. Now, she had no delight in God's law and didn't even know what it was because she she couldn't understand those things. But for the believer, for Paul, he says, I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And if you remember Romans 7, that's the one that ends in, <laughs> who will rescue me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. But he continues on in chapter 8. If, if we live according to the flesh, and those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. To set your mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. And so if we are still in our old nature, in the flesh, we're at enmity against God, we're enemies, we can't please him, we can't understand him, we can't know him until he has transformed us and given us a new heart and a new spirit. And now when that spirit is in us, we then no longer will live in our sins because we are a new person, a new creation in Christ. Everyone who believes is a new creation in Christ. And by the Spirit, we'll walk in the things that we are called to walk in. And Galatians 5 mentions this, 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other and keep you from doing what you want. And so if we have God's spirit in us, God's seed in us. Oh, and that's the other interpretation. Some understand this to mean God's seed here to be the Holy Spirit. If we have God's spirit in us, we will not sin, continue in our sin. And this is promised us in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, if we have his spirit in us, we will walk in his spirit, and in his spirit we will no longer gratify the flesh. Uh, either way, you know, it's talking about our new nature and our new disposition and our new life. And a new heart and the Holy Spirit, they go hand in hand together. And so he says it's not possible to make a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in us. Because we're a new creation in Christ, we will no longer live that life of sin. Now, we talked about David. Was that last week, I think? That... Yeah, David lived in a backslidden place for a while, but his life as a whole was not like that. He lived that way for a while, was called on it, repented of it, and lived the rest of his life glorifying God and living according to what God's Spirit required of him.
the bottom line here. If we were born of God, bottom line of verse 9, born of God, we're no longer in Satan's kingdom to do Satan's will. If we've been born of God, we have a new heart and new nature. It's freed us from bondage to sin and death. And we're now alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we've been born of God, we are his children. And we want to please our heavenly father. If we've been born of God, we can no longer make a practice of sinning. And that practice of sinning means that sin is our habit. You know, Christians, we talked about last time, we stumble in sin. But it's our attitude towards it. We hate it. We despise it. We weep for it. We repent of it. We seek to do better in the future. And we cry out to God. We do not make a practice of it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And this brings us to the conclusion in verse 10. And this is really the conclusion of chapter 2, verse 28, down through chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's his grand summary of this section in one of the core truths of the book John is writing. And a very important warning to us as believers. And it's translated, by this it is evident. You could also they say, translated, by this it is plainly recognized, or by this it is plainly known, who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. In other words, it's, it's very apparent. Not to beat a dead horse, But it is not saying make righteousness your practice and then therefore you will become in time a child of God. He's explicitly saying the opposite. You're known to be a child of God because righteousness has become your practice. You become a child of God because out of your new heart, out of your new nature, out of your new life, you practice righteousness by habit as opposed to practicing sin by habit. From a human side, we become children of God, not because of our works or because of our merit, but as a free gift through faith in Christ. From the divine side, we understand that he chose and elected us, and we see that all in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, before him in love he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Christ Jesus so we'll be children of God according to the purpose of his will in verse 11 in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works at all things according to the counsel of his will and we know God has chosen us and decided that this is going to happen and he's going to work it out according to his will and he regenerated us He gave us that new heart, put his spirit in us that we were reading about. And Paul talks about this to Titus in Titus 3, 5 and following. He said he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
And so we have also then been justified before him, meaning we can stand before him innocent of our sins because our sins have been placed upon Christ on the cross and paid for. And his righteous life has been credited to our account so that we have a reward before God. And we have, as we said, received that adoption of sons. We are now children of God and to be called children of God. And as children of God, we will produce the fruit of children of God. And we all understand that passage. By your fruit shall you know them. Of course, he's talking mostly about the teachers and the prophets. Matthew 7:15 and following. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, deceitful, coming in sheep's clothing. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but every diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you shall recognize them by their fruits. Now, point blank, what he is giving us in this passage, in this section, from 2.28 to 3.10, is another one of his tests. Do you belong to Christ? Are you a child of God or are you not? Do you need to be looking at your own salvation? Are you a believer? Are you like David backslidden? Are you an unbeliever? Or will you have confidence that his appearing? Remember that was verse 28 of chapter 2. We want to be able to have confidence when he appears and not shrink back. Are we going to shrink away from Christ when he comes? You know, we will often boldly say, storming the kingdom of God, I'm ready. But examine our hearts. Test ourselves according to the test John has given. Are we walking as Christ walked? Are we in the light? Do we love our brothers? Do we not love the world? All of those tests he has given us and will continue to explain to us. These are tests for us, but it's also a test for those we know. Do, Do they need our help? Somebody needed to call David back on track. He was living backslidden. Uh, I remember hearing a story from a pastor. Two of the kids in his church got involved in immorality together. When they got caught, they ran away. So when they found out where the kids were, he and his elder drove, I think it was like 400 miles to the city they were in, sat down with them and talked to them and prayed with them, and they came home, repented to the church, set things right. They got married which they wanted to do. But, you know, somebody has to talk to them. Sometimes we need to talk to a friend, a loved one, a family member about sin. James tells us in James 5, 20, 19 and 20, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, if you can bring them back to repentance, their sins can be covered by the blood of Christ. And that's part of our obligation as believers. That's part of how you love your brothers. It's also a test for those we follow. You know, we sometimes get into the 
pre popular preachers and books and whatnot. And, uh, more than once in my life, the person I've been reading avidly and enjoying has gone off the deep end in their old age. And sometimes I credit that to similitude and sometimes to, wow, if you look back and look at the stuff they've written, maybe they weren't so good. We need to be careful about who we follow. John had said back in verse 26 of chapter 2, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. Now they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They have snuck in unawares, as Jude told us. They are there trying to get us. Every situation in the Bible, in the letters of the New Testament, where they're writing against some heresy, the implication is these people are pretending to be angels or apostles or teachers of God, and they're doing the opposite, leading us astray. So we need to be careful. But this test is really for us and for our hearts. And the other side of it is greatly encouraging. You know, if we are passing the test, if we are confident, I am walking in the light, I hate my sin, I don't walk in my sin, I've turned from it, I repent of it, when I stumble in it, I repent of it again, confess it to God, turn from it, I, I rejoice in the rightness of God's law. I don't read it and say, oh man, what a heavy burden. No, his burden is light. And I rejoice. And I walk according to it. And I see the fruits of regeneration in my life. Then I can have great confidence and great assurance of salvation. You know, many people who go through their whole life, God loves me, God loves me not. Oh, I sinned, maybe God hates me and I'm going to hell. I've, you know, now I'm walking with God, right again, maybe he loves me and I'll go to heaven. No, that's not the way it is. Am I a child of God? Do I have a new heart, a new spirit? Do I see the fruit of that, the evidence of that? If so, I can have great joy in him and a great encouragement to repent further and to set my heart more and more on heaven. You know, if you're not confident you're going to heaven, what's the point of putting your treasure there? You know, if you think you're going to die at 50, why would you want to spend money in a retirement account? Spend it now. <laughs> you know, if you're not going to go to heaven, enjoy your sin. You know, because we know and have great confidence in our eternal life, because we have great confidence that we really are children of God, it helps us to turn away from the things of the world helps us to turn away from our sin and say, this doesn't appeal. What appeals to me is my Lord, my Savior, and my God in his kingdom. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would enable us to more and more turn from our sins, more and more walk rightly according to your word, according to your will, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the truth, be careful to keep your commandments, to find that the things you command are right and just and joyful for us, that we might rejoice day and night in your law, and that we might work to do it. We pray, Lord, for that joy that comes from knowing that we are your children, 
that we are no longer children of the devil, but belong to you and have a hope and a future. And we pray you would grant us grace, Lord, deliver our lives for you and for your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.